Take your Bibles this morning, if you will, and open to 1 Samuel chapter 15. You may want to also find Amos. I'll go ahead and tell you that now. Keep your finger on that for a little while. We'll read from Amos as well. 1 Samuel chapter 15, and we'll start in just a moment with verse 12, and we'll finish the chapter this morning. I don't remember this story, but my parents like to remind me of this. One time when I was a toddler, one night before bedtime, my mom told me to go to the bathroom, but wait to brush my teeth until she got into the bathroom. I came out of the bathroom in a minute later with toothpaste all over my mouth. And when mom and dad asked me if I brushed my teeth, even though I was told to wait, I said no. <laughs> Unfortunately for me, the toothpaste kind of gave that away. And I guess I could have argued, yeah, but mom, I was trying to help you out. You're busy. You've got a lot of things to do. And I was just trying to get that over with so that you wouldn't have to worry about it. Or come up with any kind of excuse or justification I could have, but at the end of the day, I disobeyed. It's always better to obey. Last week, we saw where King Saul and his soldiers failed to obey the command of God in carrying out complete divine judgment against the Amalekites. So this morning we'll see where the prophet Samuel will come and confront Saul about his disobedience. And Saul will offer excuses. He will offer justifications for his disobedience. But at the end of the day, as Samuel will teach him, it's always better to obey. And when we disobey, we'll see with Saul, there's some devastating consequences. Disobedience carries consequences. So look at verse 12 through 15. We'll see where Samuel tracks down Saul uh, and confronts him. Look at verse 12 of 1 Samuel 15. And when Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set him up a place, and is gone about, and passed on, and gone down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen, to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. The first thing I want us to notice here about Saul's response to his victory over the Amalekites well, remember, he was victorious. He just wasn't completely obedient. But the first thing is notice in verse 12, when Samuel is looking for Saul, it says that he came to Carmel. He's not there anymore. He set him up a place. The idea there means that Saul has built or erected some sort of monument for himself to commemorate this victory. I want you to think about how arrogant and absurd and prideful this is from Saul. It's a far cry from the Saul, from how Saul responded to his first kingly victory. Chapters ago, when he was victorious the first time, he said, the Lord has wrought salvation in Israel. And he gave all the credit to God, taking none for himself. But now he wants to make sure that his legacy lives on instead of God receiving praise. And so he erects this monument. He builds a statue to himself somewhere around Carmel. Not only was that very arrogant, but it proved that Saul didn't appreciate the gravity 
and the seriousness of the situation. God's command to, to go to war with the Amalekites was, was a decree of divine justice. We talked about that last week. This was not just any old war. It was a very holy and solemn occasion where Saul and the Israelite soldiers were given the, the responsibility to carry out divine justice against the Amalekites for their terrible wickedness. So why in the world would Saul want to erect a monument to himself when this had to do with divine judgment against another group of people? That's not something to remember Saul about. But that's the arrogance that is, that is creeping up in his life now. The second thing that we need to notice from these verses is, look in verse 14. When Saul greets Samuel, what does he do? He brags about his obedience. Behold! I've kept the, God's command. We want to just, we want to wonder, Saul, are you just foolish? Are you clueless? Did you, does he think that God's commands aren't that serious and just following them half-heartedly counts? Or perhaps he was trying to cover it up. Perhaps he was trying to convince Samuel, who wasn't at the battle, that we've done everything that God asked us to do. Perhaps that's the case. And if that is the case, Samuel definitely knew better. And he offers the famous line, and how come it sounds like a barnyard here? If you killed everything, if you've killed all the animals, then why am I hearing sheep and oxen? What's this bleeding of sheep? If they would have obeyed God and exterminated everything like they were told, then the campsite of Israel there would have been very quiet. It would have been very contemplative with the people reflecting on the holiness of God and the gravity of what they just did and how serious God views sin. That's what should have been going on with the Israelites, with King Saul and in their camp, but instead it sounds like a barnyard. If you did obey, then why am I hearing the bleeding of sheep and the lowing of oxen? If Saul was trying to hide his sin from Samuel, the animals gave it away. I like what one author says. He says, Sin cannot be wholly concealed. God knows how to bring it to light, however great the care with which it may be cloaked. He was convicted of it by the voices of the very animals which he had spared. The very animals that he spared told on him. Kind of like the toothpaste around my mouth. It gave it away. Saul, I know you didn't obey because I'm hearing animals. They're not only part of your disobedience, they're proof of your disobedience. And that's something that in our lives we need to realize, and it's a very serious thing, is that we cannot hide our sin. We may be able to for a while. Numbers 32, 33 says, Be sure your sin will find you out. It did with Saul here. And once Samuel called him out for his disobedience, though, verse 15, he blamed the people. They brought him. But he also says they've got good intentions. So he tries to justify their actions. And then he reaffirms, really, we did mostly obey. Look at verse 15 again. They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the, auction, and the oxen to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. We did mainly obey, but we had a better idea than what God told us to do. We're going we're gonna to sacrifice the best to God instead of destroying them the way He told us to. How silly does that sound? 
our disobediences for God. We're disobeying for God's betterment, for God's praise, and for God's worship. This is for Him. Really? Samuel's not going to stand there and listen to those excuses. Look at verse 16 through 19. He'll deliver a message from God to Saul. Verse 16, Then Samuel said unto Saul, Stay, and I will tell thee what the Lord has said to me this night. And he said to him, Say on. And Samuel said, When thou wast little in thine own sight, was thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel, and the Lord anointed thee king over Israel? The Lord sent thee on a journey, and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners of the Amalekites, and fight against them until they be consumed. Wherefore then didst thou not obey the voice of the Lord, but didst fly upon the spoil, and didst evil in the sight of the Lord? Just like earlier in the chapter, Samuel reminds Saul of his humble beginnings. You didn't make yourself king. God made you king. Anything you have, you owe to him anyway, Saul. And that ought to be a lesson in our lives. We should always check our egos. Because even if we have accomplished anything, even if you have become somebody in your life, whatever that means, anything good in your life, you owe it to God. You owe it to His grace and His mercy. And in spite of all the grace that God has showed Saul, he disobeyed again. You just want to take Saul and shake him sometimes. But verse 19, Samuel gives us some insight into sparing the best animals with this phrase, fly upon the spoil. The word fly here... It's a very picturesque word, and it gives, it gives the idea of a bird of prey attacking its target in a very violent and selfish and greedy way. One, one man even says a definition for this word is to dart greedily. And so, even though Saul said we spared them to worship, we spared these, men, uh, these animals to sacrifice, it seems like Samuel's saying here, I know better than that. Because you have pounced on the spoil. Just like a greedy vulture, you hovered around the good stuff and you grabbed it for yourself. Why did you fly upon the spoil when there shouldn't have been spoil? Everything should have been destroyed. But now that Samuel has pointed out their disobedience, it sounded good to recommit the animals to God. Well, um, you know, we, we brought them to, to sacrifice. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Samuel says, I, I know better. I know why you took him in the first place. If they had truly intended on sacrificing them, then why hadn't they done it? They had time to build a monument to Saul. But the animals are still alive. But Saul wouldn't give up. In verse 20 and 21, he reaffirms his obedience again. Look at verse 20. And Saul said unto Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord, and have gone the way which the Lord sent me, and have brought Agag the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took of the spoil sheep and oxen, the chief of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice unto the Lord thy God in Gilgal. you got to wonder, is Saul just delusional? Does he truly think he has obeyed? He admits disobedience when he says, I've brought King Agag, right? King Agag should not be alive at this point. The animals shouldn't be alive at this point. God's command in verse 3 was clear, and it was clearly not followed. And so at this point, starting in verse 22 and 23, 
Samuel offers these, these very, very famous words in 1 Samuel. Maybe the, the most famous words of Samuel in, the entire, uh, in his entire life. And they're words that teach us the importance of obedience and the seriousness with which God looks upon disobedience. Look at 22 and 23. And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice. Even if the people did have this true intention of sparing the animals for worshiping God later, even if that was true, which is doubtful the way Samuel says you flew upon the spoil, but let's give them the benefit of the doubt and even say that was what they wanted to do, it was still wrong because it was disobedient to God's command to destroy everything. And the, the fascinating thing about the statement of obedience is better than sacrifice is that sacrifice is good. Sacrifices under normal circumstances, there's nothing wrong with that. The law of Moses required sacrifices to be offered. Sacrifices were a worshipful act. But if the heart of the worshiper was not right with God, then the sacrifice meant nothing and God would not accept it. I told you to find Amos. Look at Amos chapter 5. There are quite a few scriptures that are, that are similar to Amos chapter 5 that we'll read. Amos chapter 5, starting with verse 21 through 24. And these verses will just show us that you can do all sorts of religious acts. But if your heart isn't right and you're not living obediently for God, then they're absolutely meaningless and they're not worshipful. Look at verse 21. He tells Israel, I hate, I despise your feast days, and I will not smell in your solemn assemblies. Though ye offer me burnt offerings and your meat offerings, I will not accept them. Neither will I regard the peace offerings of your fat beasts. Take thou away from me the noise of thy songs, for I will not hear the melody of thy vials. But let judgment run down as waters, and righteousness as a mighty stream. The Israelites in Amos were, were going through the motions religiously, offering sacrifices, keeping the feast days, doing all of those worshipful activities. But their lives were lived in complete disobedience and disregard for God's law. There was no love. There was no righteousness. There was no holiness. It was just going through the motions. And while feast days and sacrifices and singing, those are good things, when the heart and life of the worshiper don't match with those things, God says, I will not accept that as worship. If we're not serving God out of hearts of obedience and love, and we're not living the way He desires, then no amount of religious activities will please God or constitute true worship. 
even good things like singing songs and giving offering and coming to church and all of those things, they do not please God if our lives are lived in defiance to His commands. In the case of 1 Samuel, the sacrifices, while in a bubble, in a vacuum, they're fine. But in that case, they were in complete defiance of the commands of God. And so even though, again, sacrifices in general are good, those were not. They would not please God at all. I like what one man says. He says, the Lord wants living obedience from the heart, not dead animals on the altar. The beauty of it all, though, is when our obedience and our worship coexist. When they fit together, that's what we should want. That's what God wants. He doesn't want disobedient people going through the motions of worship. He wants obedient people worshiping. And our worship today, it must be more than just showing up on Sunday and going through the motions after living a life of sin and disobedience during the week. But if we'll obey God and live for Him Monday through Saturday, our worship on Sunday will be so wonderful. You'll be surprised if our hearts are right and our lives are right with God when we all meet together. That's true worship. And another thing we need to understand here in 1 Samuel and in applying it to us, you cannot improve upon the commands of God. Well, I know God said to destroy everything, Saul, but wouldn't it be even better if we spared the best animals to sacrifice to Him later? You cannot improve upon God's commands, even if you think your idea is good. Even if you think your way might be better, it's not. And so that's true for us today, and we don't ever need to underestimate the importance and the power of simple obedience. We don't have to reinvent the wheel to please God and to worship Him. We just need to obey what He's told us to do. And when that comes to our church's worship, it takes all the pressure off of us. We don't have to come up with any gimmick, any game, any smoke and mirrors to try and make our worship better. Well, I know what the Bible says, but we've got to do more. We've got to do better. We can improve upon this. No, we can't. You cannot improve upon the method and the manner in which God has told us to obey Him and worship Him. The best worship we can offer is what He's already commanded. Praying, singing, giving, and preaching, and all of that done in spirit and in truth. And I think we've done all that this morning. Say, so, yeah, but we could do this and that. It'd be even better. No. You cannot improve upon God's commands. We shouldn't even try. God takes it very seriously when people stray from His commands. Notice verse 23, how serious disobedience is. Rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. Everybody in here would, would label witchcraft as a terrible abomination. The law says it's an abomination to God. Even King Saul as stubborn as he is a lot of times, did his best to rid that from Israel. And now Samuel's telling him that rebellion is just the same. 
disobedience to God's commands is as evil as witchcraft, Saul. You can't just say, well, all I did was disobey. It's not that big a deal. Is witchcraft a big deal? He goes on to say, stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. The word stubborn is a, is a, is a very picturesque word. It has the idea of striking something or beating it, kind of hammering it out until it becomes blunt or dull. When someone's mind is beaten down to where they're dull, or their heart's beaten down to where they're dull, they're stubborn. That's the idea here. We talk like that today, don't we? When we say he's not the sharpest knife in the drawer, and we say things like that. But here Samuel's not talking about a lack of intelligence. He's talking about a dull mind when it comes to God's Word. Someone who stubbornly refuses to obey. And Samuel likens that stubbornness to idol worship. Everyone in here would raise your hand when I said, is idol worship terrible? Of course it is. Worshiping another God other than the one true God, putting anything ahead of Him, that's, that's a horrible wickedness, and we get that. Samuel says, stubbornly refusing to obey is idolatry. Say, so how is it idolatry? Because when you disobey, you are setting yourself up and your will up ahead of God's commands. And anytime we set anything ahead of God, it's idolatry. And that's what was happening here. Witchcraft and idolatry were no doubt horrible. But stubbornly disobeying God is just as bad. And we need to understand that in our lives as well because there are consequences to disobedience. We understand that. In, in Saul's life, it was that his kingdom was ripped away from him. Samuel says, you rejected God's word. He's rejected you as king. And in verse 24 and 26, Saul finally acknowledges his sin. You know, finally but he gives the reason to why he disobeyed. Look at verse 24. And Saul said unto Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in thy words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore I pray thee, pardon my sin, and turn again with me that I may worship the Lord. And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, the Lord has rejected thee from being king over Israel. I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Really, this, this means I feared the people more than I feared God. Because he had a command given from God. But he says, the reason I didn't follow that command is because I feared the people. It's been said before that it's better to please God and displease men than please men and displease God. But Saul didn't live by that. Really, this is the opposite of the, the, the apostles in Acts when they're told to stop preaching in Jesus' name, to stop spreading the gospel, and they say we ought to obey God rather than men. Here, Saul obeys men rather than God. It's completely backwards. He admits it. I feared the people. So because of this misplaced fear, he has disobeyed God he also has a misunderstanding of what forgiveness is because he asked Samuel to pardon my sin. Samuel has no authority to forgive sins. He's a prophet. He's a man of God. He can't forgive someone's sins. Who can do that? Only God. Why isn't Saul praying to God? Why isn't he falling on his knees and asking God to forgive him instead of the prophet? 
It's that stubbornness in his heart that we've seen for chapters and his spiritual dullness. In your life, you need to understand that the only person that can forgive your sins is God Almighty, and He does it through His Son, Jesus Christ. There is no prophet, there is no preacher, there is no priest that you have to go to in order to get God's forgiveness. He forgives freely and fully when you repent of your sins and trust in His Son. There is no other way. And if you've never done that, I'm praying that happens this morning. I'm praying for you. Nobody else can pardon your sin. It's only God and only because of what His Son Jesus did on the cross. Saul is, is finally at least admitting his sin. He wants Samuel to, to help him out. Samuel says no. And it seems that Samuel sorts, uh, starts to kind of turn away from Saul. And as he leaves, Saul's going to grab his robe and he's going to rip the edge of it. And Samuel is going to interpret that as a very symbolic action. Look at verse 27 through 29. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold upon the skirt of his mantle and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. The uh, idea of the skirt of his mantle here, it refers to the very edge of Samuel's robe. And so as Samuel turns to walk away, Saul reaches out and grabs the bottom part, the edge of Samuel's robe, and he rips it. And using that, Samuel made that declaration of verse 28 that just like that, the kingdom's been ripped from you today. But there's more significance to it than that for, for a couple of reasons when we understand the culture First, the law of Moses required that at the edge of a man's garment there were tassels, which were these symbolic reminders of God's command. The law of Moses uh, required that. And so it's hard to miss that here Saul, the man who disregarded and disobeyed God's commands, is ripping the reminder of God's commands off of Samuel's garment. He's, he's ripping those tassels away that were supposed to be symbolic reminders of the things God commanded. And even more so than that, in that culture, the edge of a man's robe represented his power and his authority. And so Samuel sees the edge of his garment ripped away, that symbolic, uh, that, that symbolic of his authority, his power, and he looks at Saul and he says, God has ripped away your authority as king. It was a very symbolic and meaningful thing that happened there. And Saul says he's given it to a neighbor that's better than you. That had to hurt. I don't think anybody would argue, though, knowing the story of Saul and David, that David's a better man than Saul. He's a man after God's own heart. We've already been prepared for that. And it's the next chapter that he'll be anointed as king. And God's not going to change his mind about that. And that's the idea of verse 29. And we'll talk about that for a minute because he says the strength of Israel there will not lie nor repent for he's not a man that he should repent. But what did we see last week? Look at verse 11, back in chapter, still in chapter 15, but look back at verse 11. What does God say? It repenteth me that I have set up Saul the king. Look at verse 35, the very end of the verse. 
and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. So we've got two scriptures that say as the Lord repented for making Saul king, and now in verse 29 it says he's not going to repent. So how do, we, how do we teach this? How do we put these together? If you remember from last week, the word repent, and it's the same word all these times, the word repent here is not what we normally think of that describes man's repentance. It's not talking about someone who is sinning, turning around from that, and turning towards righteousness because they did something wrong and they finally realize it, they're finally convicted about it. That's not the idea of this word. But this word has the idea of someone taking a deep breath, an emotional response, a deep sigh. It could mean to grieve, to feel sorry for, and things like that. And so that was the idea we saw last week in verse 11, and it will be in verse 35 as well. God didn't repent in making Saul king in the way that he did something wrong, and he's now turning from Saul to David. But it's a deep breath. It's that... It's that emotional sigh of sorrow over Saul's disobedience, not because God did something wrong. But the same word is used here in verse 29. So how do we put these together? Another definition of this word for repent has the idea of changing one's mind, taking a deep breath and kind of changing your mind about something. And God's not going to do that. And so how do you know that in verse 29 it should be change his mind? Because of the context. First of all, is the word strength. When he talks about God, Samuel calls God the strength of Israel. The word strength there is not your normal word for power or might, but it's a word that has a twofold meaning. One of brilliance and one of endurance. And people use the sun as, as a picture of this word. The sun that you see every morning, it is both brilliant in the sense that it is bright and majestic and glorious, but it's also enduring. It's not just brilliant for a minute and then fades away and goes away every day. It comes up every day, every day. It's lasting. It's continual. And that's the idea here. God is both the glory of Israel, which I think some translate it that way, the glory of Israel. But it's not a glory that fades away. He's the enduring one of Israel. And so the, the things that He declares, they last. They're enduring. And just like the sun, which maybe from our perspective seems to move, it doesn't. It's fixed. We just see the sun from different perspectives. The same thing is true of God. He's unchangeable. He's immutable. He doesn't change. But maybe we learn more about something and we see Him from a bit different perspective, even though He hasn't moved. His purposes for Israel have not changed because of Saul's failure. But maybe we see them from a different perspective now that we know of Saul's failure and we know that David's coming. We see his actions from a different point of view. God has not changed. He's the enduring one. He's the strength of Israel. So that's one reason why we know that the idea here of repent is, is, is changing your mind. Another one is what Samuel goes on to say. The strength of Israel will not what? Lie. He won't lie. He's already said he's ripped the kingdom from you, Saul. He's not a liar. God cannot lie. This is not a trick. This was not uh, dishonest. This was right. It was just. It was, it was the truth. Saul, God's not lying about this. And then the last thing is he says, 
for he's not a man that he should repent. And so men change their minds all the time. Men are so fickle about things. When we have information, we make a decision. When we gain more information, we might change our minds. But God cannot gain information because he already knows it all. And so when God makes a decision, when God says something and declares something, he won't change his mind. And so reconciling the ideas here in 1 Samuel 15 about God repenting and not repenting, it's not that hard. God did indeed repent of making Saul king in the sense that he let out an emotional response. He was grieved over the disobediences of Saul. But now that he has said, Saul, you are no longer king, that authority is removed and I'm setting up someone else, he would not take a deep breath and change his mind because he's not a man. And this is not a lie. He's the enduring one of Israel. And this is one of his lasting declarations. You know, we can draw a lot of, a whole lot of encouragement over the fact that God doesn't change. <laughs> if God changed and I woke up tomorrow and he did change, well, how do I know what he wants? <laughs> how, do, how do I know if what saves me today will save me tomorrow? How do I know if the promises of God that I read in the Bible that are good today would still be good tomorrow if God changed and was fickle like men? He doesn't. He's not a man. He's the enduring one. And so the, the power of Christ to save us is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The promises that God's made in His Word, they're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Because God does not change James says it like this, there is no shadow of turning with him. Men turn around, we move and our shadows are all over the place. Not with God. Saul, this is serious and it's final. He's not changing his mind. Verse 30 through 35, the chapter ends with Saul trying to save face before the people but losing opportunities to serve God. Look quickly at verse 30 through 35. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of my people and before Israel. And turn again with me that I may worship the Lord thy God. So Samuel turned again after Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then said Samuel, bring ye hither to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. Agag came unto him delicately, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As thy sword hath made women childless, so shall thy mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house to Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. When Saul says there in verse 30, I've sinned but honor me in front of the people, doesn't it just still seem like he's more worried about what he looks like in front of the people than actually what his heart is like in front of God? Yeah, I've sinned, but let's at least cover it up and, and you go out with me in front of the people so they don't think anything weird's happened. So they don't think that anything has changed. It's so different from David's confession of sin. Go read Psalm 51 this afternoon and read how David confesses his sin. Samuel does turn again, though, and maybe it did look good to the people. 
but Saul has given up opportunities to serve God now. It is Saul, uh, it is Samuel, not Saul, who carries out the divine judgment against Agag. Saul has, has surrendered that, that opportunity. And verse 35 even tells us that the relationship between Samuel and Saul has forever changed. Samuel would not go to Saul again. He's not the rightful king anymore. The next chapter, he will go and he will anoint, under the Lord's leadership, anoint David as the rightful king of Israel. To obey is better than sacrifice. God desires a heart full of obedience rather than heartless religious actions. There are no amount of religious deeds that please God if our hearts aren't following Him and our motives are not pure. And so individually in your own life and as a church, let us be obedient. Individually, that means living lives of love, living lives of gentleness, honesty, truthfulness, humility, and all the things that we're supposed to present in our lives, the fruit of the Spirit and all of those things. And you cannot improve on any of that, so don't even try. You want to be the best worshiper of God you can be, the best Christian you can be, then yield to the leadership of God's Spirit and let Him work those fruits in your life. That's the best you can be. That's what God's already said. And as a church, it means we worship in spirit and in truth through prayer, songs, giving, and preaching reverently, respectfully, humbly, and we cannot improve upon that. We better not even try. Say, I really, really want to prove my love for God. Nothing proves your love for God more than obedience. What did Jesus tell his disciples on the night that he was betrayed? If you love me, keep my commandments. Let's live lives of obedience. Would you stand? Bow for a word of prayer as we prepare for an invitation. Father, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for the honest portrayal of your people, even when it means that they have failed, because we, we thank you for the lessons that we can learn from that in our lives, and we pray that, that we would understand the seriousness and the value of obedience, Lord, and that we would not only be people but a church that, that obeys you and follows your commands, Lord. If there's someone here today who's lost, Lord, we pray for their salvation. We ask forgiveness of our sins in Jesus' name. Amen.